Welcome to The Antique Show. We talk antiques, collectibles and art and all the news and events from Australia and around the globe. Here's your host, Jason Harris. Uh, thank you, voiceover guy. And what a huge week in auctions and antiques. And we've got a big show coming up. Welcome to The Antique Show. My name's Jason Harris. Now, this week, we talk buttons, discover a new word, have a fireside chat with one of South Australia's largest antique and ephemera dealers, and we dive deep into the world of Clement Meadmore. Of course, joining me in studio is our man behind the glass, Mark, and my four-legged friends, Billy and Wilbur. I hope you're warm, enjoying it, sit back, relaxed. Now, as our second episode, we learn a lot after producing the first episode. Uh, certainly, uh, probably went on a little bit long last time, so we've cut the format a little bit, and we have got a couple of new and exciting additions. But first, to the news. The Auction and Antique News, brought to you by The Antique Show. And in international news, now ecclesiastical gates, gates found on churches, are not usually the subject of mass appeal. There's a pun in there somewhere. But examples by two major 19th century designers led to bidding battles at two sales in June. The first set were a pair of seven foot four bronze gates and three single gates that were originally on the St. John the Baptist Church and where it was designed by George Gilbert Scott Jr. The church did express interest in buying them, but eventually went to an American collector. Now, the second set of gates, and these ones are fabulous small gates, were wrought iron rather than bronze, and they were three foot uh, 11 inches, almost four foot high. But these were probably designed by Pugin, or certainly the Pugin style, and they were removed in the 80s during refurbishment, and they sold for £2,200. The Morphy auctions, and this is quite amazing news, they are based in Denver, Pennsylvania in the US and they had a fine and decorative art sale that featured a very unusual Russian silver mounted pottery vase. Now it was competed for by multiple bidders who recognise its pedigree and belonging to a rare subset of works that combine jeweled metal mounts at the Fabergé Moscow branch with art pottery created by ceramicists at the Imperial Strognov School, which sounds like a cooking school. Now, this particular example received 66 bids and eventually sold to a buyer for $115,000 US, which is 157 times the high estimate. Now, a recent sale of single owner collection of Moorcroft pottery uh, offered by Kingham and Orm in Eversham demonstrated two distinct faces of the Staffordshire factory, dubbed by Walter Moorcroft, son of founder William, as the finest piece the factory ever produced, a large 1910 two-handled baluster vase that combines a deep frieze of finely observed pomegranates with panels of poppies to the neck, was the bestseller amongst the 324 lots, and it sold for a hammer price of £16,000, around about 35 was that $33,000, Australian? Quite amazing. Now, on to lovely pieces of micro-mosaic. So catalogued as a Georgian or stroke Victorian, so late Georgian, early Victorian micro-mosaic plaque depicting a dove. It was a classic example of pieces produced by Italian craftsmen. It was estimated around about 300 to 500 pounds at a Gloucestershire sale. The plaque attracted a lot of 
uh, interest both locally and overseas. Now, what is interesting about this story, this was actually found in an odds and ends box uh, by the descendants of a widow, and the widow got it from a he, uh, her husband, who was a returned soldier who, who died from his wounds later. Now, this plaque, which is decorated in dubs, sold for £6,000, despite a low estimate of 300 to £500. Pounds. And over to the subcontinent, and Christie's had a 109 million US dollar sale of Indian jewellery and works of art. And this comes from the Althahani family, and it's held in New York on June 19. Now, one of the highlights of this was a jewelled dress dagger um, that was bought or thought to have belonged to uh, Shah Hajani, the fifth Mughal Empire, and the man who bought or built the Taj Mahal. Now, it had a estimate of 1.5 to $2 million, that's US dollars, and it ended up selling for $3.375 million. And that established a new record price for an Indian jade object. And the big news of the week is a Botticelli, or in the style of Botticelli, sold for 914 times its top estimate, eventually knocking down in a Zurich auction room for 5.16 million pounds. Now it's after an intense 10 minute battle from multiple international buyers. Um, now it had originally been in Catalogued as in the style of Sandro Botticelli, uh, 16, uh, sorry, 1445 to 1510. But as I said, end up selling for 914 times its estimate. And that's despite an extensive overpaint and a very critical conservation report. So 914 times the top estimate, 5 million pounds, around about $12 million Australian. And that's the news of the week. Word of the week. A battant. It's a term for a drop lid or full front desk in French. Discover to find unexpectedly. Clement Meadmore was best known for his massive outdoor steel sculptures that can be found all around the world. He was an Australian-American sculptor, designer and author and was greatly influenced by Mary Agnes, his mother, who was a great admirer of the arts. He initially majored in aeronautical engineering but quickly took a formal industrial design course when the opportunity arose. After graduating in 1949, Meadmore started promoting himself as an industrial designer creating furniture that met with more than a modicum of success. His first notable design was a corded black steel dining chair that came out in 1952. It featured a steel frame wrapped in synthetic fibre cord that came in a number of colours. The chair came out under the Meadmore Originals banner and sold in a furniture store in Collins Street in Melbourne. Meadmore went on to design other furniture including a recliner and a dining table that had similar aesthetic values. By the mid-1950s, Meadmore was concentrating more and more on his sculptures. He would get several commissions for exhibits during this time, including one-man shows in Melbourne and Sydney. In 1956, Meadmore partnered briefly with Max Robinson to manufacture furniture. This was followed by a collaboration with painter Leonard French to work on the interiors of Legend Espresso and Milk Bar in Melbourne. In 1960, 
to pursue this part of his career, he moved to Sydney. There he exhibited his sculptures in a couple of galleries. He also was awarded a commission to create a sculpture balustrade for the Town House Hotel in Canberra. Lastly, during this time there, he briefly taught sculpture at the National School of Arts. In 1963, at the age of 34, Meadmore moved to New York. He would later become a United States citizen and spend the rest of his days there. The one exception was when he went back to Australia to spend a year as a photo editor for the Vogue magazine. Once in New York, he fully committed to his sculpting. Meadmore wrote a couple of books in his lifetime. He wrote How to Make Furniture Without Tools and The Modern Chair, classic designs by Thonet, Brewer, Le Cabousier, Eames and others. He also was an amateur drummer, often holding jam sessions in his home and loved jazz. And that fondness was reflected in the names of quite a number of his sculptures. For example, Rift, Night and Day and Round Midnight. Clement Meadmore passed away April 19th, 2005 in his New York City home due to complications from Parkinson's disease. As his legacy, he left behind his modern sculptures, big as life and as expressive as their creator. I invite you to visit Learn Antiques, where you can read, watch, learn and grow. www.learnantiques.com.au There's articles, news, video and podcasts, and it's all for free at Learn Antiques. www.learnantiques.com.au And one of our new segments is Weird Stuff We Collect, or Weird Stuff People Collect. I'm always stunned by what people collect or what uh, what is deemed to be collectible and we've seen you know obviously stamps and coins and oil bottles and enamel signs but then there's also some very obscure things like you know insulators and telephones and mobile phones and there's Simpsons collectibles and all sorts what I've basically come up with is that if it had some sort of value at some stage then it's most likely it's going to be collectible anyway the idea behind this segment is to expose, have a little bit of fun with some weird items that people collect, but also learn something in the process. And researching my first topic, which is on buttons, I've picked something that is accessible by anyone anywhere in the world. And I'm talking about antique buttons or old buttons. Um, I was quite surprised by the community that is involved in button collecting. So let's have a look at collecting buttons. Now buttons come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes and the variety of materials include bone, mother of pearl, there's material covered ones, ones made of lucite, bakelite, celluloid, china and porcelain, vegetable ivory, metal and glass. But on the surface to me buttons look like buttons and that's you know that's a little bit naive to be able to say that but when you dive deeper there's a huge market in 18th and 19th century ornate buttons. Now, collectors can pay you know, thousands of dollars per button. Certainly in the US, I looked at one site in the US which they have a collector's fair two or three times a year, and they're paying thousands of dollars. And they've got these cute little cards that you can display your Georgian buttons or your Victorian buttons, and the idea is to collect as many of the different styles of buttons that you can. And I saw some beautiful buttons, some with little insects that are carved in them, some made of satsuma, some made of mother of pearl, and they're absolutely exquisite. They're actually works of art individually. And as I 
researched more and more on this topic, I understood the beauty and the value that people can derive from collecting buttons. Now, as I said, in the US and Europe, there are fairs, exhibitors, and even judges of button events. And a little bit more research, I went onto eBay and I saw the top button sold in, I think it was 2015, for $2,075 US. That's US dollars. And that was a Civil War Republic uh, button and it came off a Navy or Confederate Navy uniform um, and it said sold for $2,075. So buttons, and they're one of those things that can be found in every or any household across the world. I remember as a kid going to my grandmother's place and she was a milliner, milliner, milliner. She made hats by trade. And Nan would always be sewing. She was quite a keen sewer. I remember she used to make costumes when they used to do stage shows down at the local Lockleys Bowling Club. Anyway, I remember she always have these tins of buttons. Now, if only we'd kept those, there might have been something really cool in amongst them. Anyway, be on the lookout for some buttons. I hope you learned something today. They could be in, uh, in any of the shops, the antique shops. They could be at the local St. Vincent de Paul on a rare jacket or a shirt. Anyway, that's buttons as a collectible. I hope you learned something from that and be on the lookout for the next rare button. Now we're standing on Goodwood Road outside Felicia Antiques, one of Australia's biggest antique dealers. And from the outside, an amazing looking shop. Three big shop frontages. And even from the outside, I can see that it's completely packed. Let's go inside and meet Phil. Now it does give me instructions here to press the bell see what happens. Here's the amazing Phil himself. Good afternoon, Phil. How are you, sir? I'm very well, and yourself? Excellent. That's the way. Every time I come out here, it's amazing. Welcome to our humble abode. Have you ever done a stock take? How do you know how many pieces you have in here? I look at this and say there's, without even looking at jewellery cabinets and... Was it half a million pieces in here? Yeah, more. It'd so. have to be, wouldn't it? Well, there's 600,000 postcards. So Phil, tell me, how did you get into the antique industry? Uh, probably the age of three. I was collecting collectibles of that period. Okay. Toys, matchbox cars, serial cards. At the age of three, I was, three. I was madly collecting. Okay. And I was dealing with kids three, four times my age. We had a collector's club at primary school. And I used to go around swapping stuff and, uh, you know, I'll swap you that dinky toy for, you know, 50 uh, Weetbix cards. Okay. I was doing it then. What attracted you to... I don't know. I just... I don't know. I, I just loved... I loved the graphics of the cards. I loved the little toys. But I reckon it was in a social context of the buzz of working with other little kids and collectors, even at that age. Okay. So, so it, it works well. So 68 years later, you can, you can say, hand on heart, that this is something that's in your blood. It is in my DNA, in, in my DNA. blood. Okay. Do you remember at the age of three what the first thing you bought or swapped? A comma milk truck. A comma? Comma milk truck. Comma milk truck. And it had Peter's, uh, was it Peter's or Amskull ice cream on it? Okay. And I swapped it. I think I swapped that for a part of a Hornby train set. Okay. Because I remember that night the father came around of the boy I swapped it with and he <laughs> he said he wanted them back because he thought his 
twelve-year-old son was diddled by a three-year-old. <laughs> by a three-year-old. <laughs> so uh, the, deal, the dealer instinct was the, there. It was there. Well, it was there. Okay. And do you collect anything yourself? I, I understand this is your shop. This yeah. Is, all the I, stock. is there yeah, anything that you? I was a, up until recently. I was a major ephemera collector. Okay. Postcards and photographs. I've stopped collecting. And I really look at what I've got here as my collection. Hmm. And if it goes to a collector, well, that's fantastic. But, no, I do look at this as my collection. And what's the most exciting item or collection you've ever sold? Went to an auction in Melbourne Street years ago. Had a collection of photographic images of bushrangers, including Ned Kelly. Wow. Okay. And that was the most exciting for me. Uh, a lot of that went to Victoria. That was a major find here in Adelaide. So bush rangers. Victoria. Bush rangers. Captain Starlight, Ned Kelly, some. Um, and that surfaced here in Adelaide. That surfaced here in Adelaide. Wow. Okay. I can't mention names, no, but of course not. But it was a very well-known auction. Okay. And what what keeps you? I mean, talking to you and, and the, the research I've done, Phil, you you are extremely enthusiastic. We need more yeah. people like you in this industry. But what keeps you turning up each day? Cataloging, going through collections, looking at something, looking at a photograph. Like I, I had a photograph just before you came in, and it looked tremendous. It was a, a cabinet photograph taken by a major Clayton down at Yankalilla. Looked at the image and it looked fairly vice-regal. There was a man with a top hat. There were mounted troopers. Turned out to be uh, the governor, Sir Thomas Buxton. Okay. He did a vice-regal visit to the Bangala station down at Yankalilla. And there it was. A little bit of research. uh, And I've unearthed a really quite an amazing historical item. Your, your knowledge of history must be amazing then if ephemera is your thing you know, yeah. your history oh, of South Australia and, and Australia I mean you, you must need to be able to pick up a photograph and say look I, I know who that is or I yes. know that, that scenery well, or that you know. yeah, we often know the style of the photographer Okay, like a studio photographer used certain props and that would identify the photographer or the way it's written up or the, uh, the image itself lends itself to a particular lobby of photo artists. Okay. So a little bit of knowledge and experience goes a long way. And how long have you had this shop for? 1994. This is my 25th year. 25th year. 25th year. And it feels like yesterday I I came into this shop. Every day is a new experience. The, The connection with collectors and meeting people... I, uh, that's my buzz. Okay. And what did you do before you opened I'll, the shop? I was a school principal. Okay. Um, which, uh, I lo- again, love teaching. Hmm. And it was, again, working with children and, uh, you know, opening up their historical vi- vistas, you know. Big leap of faith, though. Big leap of from, faith. From, from uh, being, I can only assume, a reasonably high-paid job within the education system. High-paid, well paid Yeah. Really yeah. an unknown... Well, I was unemployed for a couple of weeks, okay. and I said, "What's, where's my passion?" And it was collecting. Okay. And I wanted to open a collector's haven, just like we've got here, to promulgate my feelings about history and sharing knowledge, and and it's worked beautifully. Mm. 
And what, what are some of the major changes you've seen in our industry over the 25 years? Oh, I think the internet's just... And the internet for your business must have been a, a godsend in some ways as well with, yep. with eBay or... Joined eBay in 1999. 19, OK. One of their very first, early on. One of their yeah. first... Uh, I think Do you remember how many pieces you've sold online? Is it? Well, we've, we're up to about uh, 14,000, 15,000 okay. items. Yeah. Uh, that's everything from postcards to uh, ruby glass of perns, you know, military uniforms, you name it. Fireman's helmets. We talk about bargains of the century. What what do you remember as being your bargain of the century? The Gallipoli diaries, the war diaries, photographs, an early Superman comic, a uniform, a court costume uniform, worn by one of our really early uh, you know, foreign ministers. We've had shirts from the Buffalo. From the Buffalo? HM... S. Buffalo. Wow. I've got one here at the moment. A shirt that was brought out on the Buffalo. Well, I can imagine over 25 years you would have yeah. seen most most oh, of it. Y- yes. Yeah. And they, the stories tend to be cyclical. Okay. You know, they uh, reoccur of course. every five or ten years. It comes, comes back to you. Who or what inspires you? Look, don't be embarrassed, but you are one. Okay. I'm sorry, Jason, and this might embarrass you, but working with you is like working with a mentor. You're a person I can bounce ideas off. I like the entrepreneurialism that you show, which I I think is fantastic, and I tend to try and emulate. Uh, people like Eric McKenna, uh, okay. uh, uh, I held up in high esteem, Jim Elder, mm-hmm. very good... Uh, Business people and dealers. Stalwarts of our, Stalwarts our industry. Of, yeah, John okay. Klinger. And what's one piece of advice you'd give the younger you? <laughs> Slow down. Slow down. Slow down. You can't have everything all at once. And where does slowing down sit on your horizon, do you think? Well, I'm physically incapable of coming here. Okay. All right. Or carrying me out in a pine box. Carrying you out in a pine box. <laughs> Yeah. So that's the goal? I want to stay here as long as I can. I've still got things to do. Well, Phil, thank you very much for your time. It's been amazing to... Well, I'm, I see you almost every week, So, but to meet you and have uh, have me out here, yes. it's been not only inspiration for me, but it's. Uh, I still... It uh, doesn't matter the amount of times I've come out here, I still walk around with my jaw hanging <laughs> loosely uh, down near my chest because just the this mm. the amount of stock. But also I appreciate your passion mm. uh, for the industry, so I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. And Felicia Antiques can be found at 315 to 319 Goodwood Road, Kings Park in South Australia. You can contact them on 8357 8177 or online at feliciaantiques.com.au. And that's spelled P. H-I-L-I-C-I-A Felicia Antiques Prepare yourself Okay, let's go And what's it worth this week? Well, we have a recap on the huge sale we had last Monday the 8th of July And we're going to open with a very unusual one a large ceramic leopard 80 centimetres high sold for $170 To be honest, not my taste, a little bit gaudy, but you cannot account for taste and how people decorate. It would look great in a 
silver chrome place maybe a few uh, trees and plants around another one a cedar chest of drawers this is quite an unusual one only because brown furniture or cedar furniture hasn't been selling that well lately but this one this is a lovely little victorian five drawer chest on small turn feet really nice finish and polish that sold for 650 dollars to the outdoor furniture a five piece saucer set so these are the old 1950s they look like lemon slices uh, with mesh uh, really nice to laze around on although they're not that comfortable on a really hot day that sold for four hundred dollars for the set really cool into some jewelry now these were absolutely stunning pieces these are a pair of golden diamond earrings there are in the diamonds the diamonds are set uh, there are seven diamonds in each of the earrings set in a floral or florette shape and they sold for two thousand three hundred dollars a coffee pot again a very unusual this one this is an early one a georgian one sterling silver 1744 with maker's mark fuller white and it weighed around 610 grams what made this interesting there's no hallmarks on it but it is definitely a silver piece and that sold for 700 dollars into some of the ephemera that we sell and a photograph of a football team and this is the west torrens football club around about 1882 had some foxing on it so foxing is where a moisture or water gets in there and creates a, a sort of unusual pattern um, and some damage to it that's called foxing and that uh, that piece sold for 500 dollars. so and that's the second or third piece now in three weeks that we've sold for around about the five or six hundred dollar marks i think there was a sturt piece and a nord piece as well of the similar vintage around about 1890s and they both sold for five and six hundred so the SANFL football memorabilia selling very, very well. Now these really surprised us. This is a pair of dish covers. So imagine a terrine and these are the dish covers or covers that go on top of that. And they are just a Blanc de China or white china with a really nice pink but very basic pink um, decoration around the outside. What made these really interesting though, these came off the SS Flinders, which is a ship, or a small ship located down near Port Adelaide. Now a pair of these sold for $950, really cool. A photo album, back into the photographs, and again, going on the strength of ephemera and uh, photographs and postcards and the like. And this really is the lesson to everyone, don't throw out uh, the postcard albums or the photograph albums or even collections of photographs. Here's a late 19th century collection of photographs still mounted in a photograph album of Barossa, so early Barossa photographs, and they sold for $2,100. And finally, another one that stunned us as well, and we get this quite often, uh, which is a really cool outcome for the vendor and also for the collectors and buyers, a set of four Aladdin Bakelite bases. Now, it's very unusual to get Bakelite bases and certainly in Aladdin lamps. So they were rare, all individually colored. So a yellow one, a green one, a pink one, and a blue one. The green one was cracked. So what we call AF or sold with all faults. And that sold for $700. So really cool. That's the wrap of what it's worth. And remember, don't throw anything out until you've spoken to an expert at your local auction house or an appraiser. Find them online, email them, get some advice first, and then decide what you want to do. All right, we're almost done with the antique show. I hope you've enjoyed the new segments and learned something along the way. In closing comment, I, for those who know me, I meditate. And I've started learning a little bit more about Zen meditation. 
Early yesterday morning, I was listening to a few mantras as I was doing the first of my Zen meditations. And the host of the meditation said something that stopped me in my tracks. And I'd like to read it out to you and reflect on it. And it goes like this. All things that happen are a gift in disguise. So all things that happen are a gift in disguise. And I suppose it goes along the same as look for the silver lining. You know, the cup's half full, not half empty. You know, it's a very, very positive comment. What I take from that is look for the gift. You know, even in the the worst of times, the the hardest of problems, the, the, the mountainous issues that we might face, look for the opportunity to learn something. Look for where the gift is in amongst there to not only expand your knowledge, but also to maybe reconnect with someone, someone else in the community, in your family. Uh, But look for that gift. So on that note, thanks for tuning in to another edition of The Antique Show. My name is Jason Harris. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you're in the Southern Hemisphere, please keep warm. It's a bit cold and chilly down here. Of course, if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, Keep cool, have a great weekend, enjoy, relax, be nice to your family, and we'll see you next week. That's the Antique Show brought to you by Scammel Auctions and is produced by Antique Education Proprietary Limited and features on learnantiques.com and the podcast Podbean for the Antique Show. Copyright 2019.